You are listening to the Trinity Presbyterian Church Podcast from Petaluma, California. Here is this week's sermon. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22, page 16 in the Pew Bibles. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word today for our sermon passage. Genesis chapter 22, hear the word of the Lord. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father, he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son your only son from me. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. Behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place. The Lord will provide, as it is, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah has also borne children to your brother Nahor, who is his firstborn, who is his brother, Kamul, the father of Aram, Hased, Azo, Tildash, Jidmuth, and Bethul, Bethul, father of Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was for Teba, Gehom, Kehash, and Meikah. Amen. You may be seated. Hmm. 
As I mentioned, today on the calendar is what we often refer to as Reformation Sunday. Uh, that's when we like to remember the historic Protestant Reformation, uh, when Martin Luther on October 31st, 1517, nailed the 95 Theses on the church drawer in Wittenberg, uh, which is often seen as sparking the Protestant Reformation. And of course, next week, we'll be officially commemorating that through our annual Reformation service uh, in the evening. And we're looking forward to resuming that uh, service after a many-year hiatus for various reasons. <coughs> but today is technically what we refer to as Reformation Sunday. Like I mentioned, we've been singing some, some Luther uh, hymns and tunes uh, so far today. But um, uh, in God's good providence, today's passage, I think, is a, a very fitting passage for us to think about on this Reformation Sunday. Uh, it really is a wonderful passage to think a little bit about the heritage of the Reformation and maybe uh, respond to some of the uh, false accusations uh, against the Protestants. I think you'll understand what I mean as I, as I take us through this passage. Uh, but today we're going to have opportunity to consider matters of, of faith and works and grace and how they interact and relate to each other. Even as we see God here not only testing Abraham, but also confirming his gracious promises to Abraham. Indeed, this grace through faith that God confirms to Abraham he continues to confirm to us in Jesus Christ. So let's dig in and see how we see Christ again in today's passage. Well, we begin at our first point, to see how God tests Abraham. That's the language of verse 1, that God tested Abraham. Let us begin by distinguishing between God testing someone versus devilish temptations. We want to distinguish between the two. God never tempts anyone to evil, according to James 1.13. The devil, he does, right? He, he desires us to fall into sin. God does not want his people to fall into sin. The big difference, God desires in our testing to grow us or confirm us or strengthen us, Satan is tempting, wants to destroy us. In light of that truth, let us address what is often a rather startling thing here, and how we see how God tests Abraham. Think about what he's, what's, what's going on here. Often the question, right, why would God, why would God command Abraham to sacrifice his own son? be very clear there are repeated Bible verses repeated passages of scripture that in no uncertain terms speaks against child sacrifice where God speaks against child sacrifice where God says for example that the idea of child sacrifice that he does not command that he does not decree that it doesn't even come into his mind Jeremiah 7, 31, Jeremiah 19, 5, 32, 35, and I can give you other examples. 
think of the law of Moses in Leviticus 18.21. The law of Moses explicitly forbids child sacrifice. Or you got like a psalm, like Psalm 106, that laments child sacrifice as a practice. Because realize, this was what some pagan heathen religions did. When you look at all these and other Bible verses that speak against child sacrifice and how, how odious it is to God, it leads us to an obvious conclusion. And it's a conclusion that we do actually see right here in this chapter. The conclusion is this. God never intended Abraham to actually sacrifice his son. Don't misunderstand that. There's a testing that goes on here, but God never actually intended for Isaac to be sacrificed in today's passage. We see that in verse 12, when God stops Abraham from doing it, you notice how it, it uses Abraham's name twice there, right? Beginning was just Abraham. Now it's Abraham, Abraham. He's really emphatically getting his attention here. As soon as that happens, as soon as that stops this from happening, God's true purpose gets revealed. You see, Isaac's life was never really in danger here. Yes, child sacrifice was a practice done by various heathen religions. But this passage actually shows us that is not what God would have to be done in terms of worship of him. And so, even though the test involves the idea, the way God handles it actually is a rebuke against child sacrifice as a form of worshiping the divine. So it is a way of sort of two birds with one stone. Uh, he's able to test Abraham at the same time to speak boldly against any idea of child sacrifice. God doesn't want his, maybe another way of saying this, God does not want his people to worship like the heathens do. There's a number of places that we see in the Old Testament where there are specific commands that God teaches that, yes, the pagans worship this way. Like they use graven images. I don't want you to worship that way. Same with child sacrifice. Well, then notice how Abraham so commendably responds to this test. Notice we don't see any complaint by Abraham. We also don't see any hesitation. Notice in verse 3, after he gets the command, he wakes up and gets an early start. I might confess that if this was me, this would be the day I would sleep in a little longer. Just put it off a little bit more. But no, he gets up early, gets an early start on the day. God had told him to make the sacrifice at a mountain in Moriah. That was a three-day journey from where he was at. We see that in verse 4. And I think we should not miss mountain of Moriah, we learn later on in 2 Chronicles, the mountain of Moriah is actually identified as the same location of Jerusalem. There's a lot that happens on Jerusalem. And Mount Zion is another name for that, that Mount Moriah. So, Abraham does all this work to make them ready for this extended little journey here. Verse 3, we see him saddling the donkey. He, he cuts wood for the burnt offering. He, he brings a knife along, along with other supplies. So Abraham is diligent to obey, is the point that I want you to see here. And don't miss the full extent of this test. 
Three times in the passage, God mentions how Isaac is, is Abraham's one and only son. Don't feel too bad for Ishmael, by the way. But as we're talking about the line of promise, of course, Ishmael's already been left, removed from the house even, right? Uh, Isaac is his one and only son. Abraham knows that God has already told him, Isaac is your promised heir. Isaac is the one I'm going to do all these great things I've been telling you about through, through Isaac. One little additional thing that's added. It's not just that Isaac is his only son. He loves Isaac. Isaac, your only son, whom you love. Abraham loves him dearly. And God tests Abraham. If he be, he would give him up in obedience. What a test. Well, Abraham passes the test. Praise be to God. God repeatedly commends Abraham here for this, verse 12, for example, um, through the angel of the Lord, which is another of those theophanies, it, it seems here. Um, he, he commends Abraham as he stops him from killing Isaac. Verse 15, God again commends Abraham for how he passes the test. Let us think about how to understand this testing. Let's just Make sure we get our head around this idea. Is God's testing of Abraham, is it ultimately a test of his obedience? In other words, is it a works-based test? Is it a works-based test so that Abraham could earn and merit God's blessings? You need to think about that. Because if you were to read just this passage all by itself, you might be tempted to conclude that. I mean, verse 18, look at verse 18. It specifically says God's commendation of Abraham is because he obeyed. Of course, Scripture has to interpret Scripture. And if we look at passages and see possible interpretations, we have to use other Scripture to help us come to the right understanding of any particular passage. And I think other scriptures help us to see what's actually able to be seen in this passage. Indeed, let's develop this through some other references of scripture. Let's think about first what the Apostle Paul teaches us in Romans. Romans 4, it says, Paul says, Abraham was justified before God through faith, not through works. In other words, Paul says Abraham did not earn all the blessings God had promised him through some meritorious set of works. Paul is very emphatic there in Romans 4. And here's how Paul makes his point. Paul goes back to... I have a typo in my, uh, my sermon again here. Uh, I said Romans 15. Yeah. He goes back to Genesis 15. In Genesis 15 which is before Genesis 17, just so you know. Genesis 14, or 15 is where we see uh, this language that God gives these promises to Abraham, and Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, Paul says that's where we see very clearly 
Abraham is justified by faith. Again, we're thinking Reformation Day topic here. Sola fide. Faith alone is how he's justified. Not justified by faith and works. He's justified by faith alone. Right there in Genesis 15, which Paul then says is before Genesis 17. In Genesis 17, that is when Abraham is commanded to circumcise the whole house, which one might think of as a work. And Abraham obeyed, and he circumcised his whole house and got the sign of the covenant. Paul's point is you can't even say that that was a work in order to be saved, because already back in 15, God had already given the gracious promises. Abraham believed it was counted as righteousness. Already back in 15, he was already declared to be justified through faith alone. We can even point back, Paul doesn't do it, but Genesis 12 is actually where we first see the gracious promises. And again, no, no requirement for some work that had to be done. So if Paul makes that point, for Genesis 15 is before Genesis 17, well, guess what? Genesis 15 is also before Genesis 22. Right? So, by the time you get to Genesis 22, long time ago now, he has already been justified by faith, already repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly given these promises, and there's nothing that's going to happen now in Genesis 22 that somehow changes all that to say, now Abraham needs to earn his salvation. Now Abraham needs to earn all the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. So following along the same argument with Paul, we can trace that to here as well. Paul actually makes a very similar point in Galatians chapter 3. There he compares what happens there in Genesis 15 all the way later on at Sinai when the law is given with all these works that they're supposed to do through the law keeping. And he says, that doesn't nullify either what God already gave via promise back in Genesis. So if Genesis, 20, uh, Genesis 17 or all the way out at Sinai, if those things can't add a requirement to the promise that's through faith, then neither can today's passage. No amount of works here or elsewhere would make Abraham earn his salvation. It is not just sola fide, but sola gratia. It's grace, a gift, a gracious gift of God to bring such blessing and salvation to Abraham. Now, often, James is used as an example against all of this. But actually, James teaches all of what we just got done talking about. James chapter 2 explicitly references today's passage in Genesis. It explicitly references this event of whether Abraham would be willing to sacrifice Isaac. And people often mistakenly think that that's teaching that Abraham needed both faith and works in order to be in right in a right standing before God. And the reason why they tend to make this mistake is because James does use the same word that Paul uses of justify. Paul says we're justified by faith alone. James says we're justified by faith and works. And the problem that, that happens here is when we, years and years later, have come to use a term in a very specific, nuanced way, a technical term now for us, and try to stick that back in the Bible. And anywhere that term is used, it must be talking about this doctrine. Oh, that's not fair. Language gets used the way language gets used. And Paul is using it in one way, and James is using the term in another way. 
And we have to be careful not to impute later theological categories when they're not actually being addressed in each of those circumstances. And so it's, it's clearly that Paul and James are using the same word but talking about different things. Paul uses it in the sense that we talk about it today as a, as a right standing before God, received through faith. But James, James is very clear when you look at the whole thing he talks about in James chapter 2. He wants to ask the question, how can we know if someone's faith is a true faith? How can we know that their faith is genuine? That they have a living faith and not a dead faith, not a counterfeit faith, not a fake faith. Because people say all the time, I'm, I'm a believer. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's always true in everyone's case. So what James is talking about is how can we see if someone's faith is actually really there? And James' point is that Isaac, or Abraham's willing to sacrifice Isaac, showed his faith. That's James' language. He showed his faith. So it's not a matter of whether you are saved by faith and works or just faith. It's a matter you're saved by faith or through faith. And you can see if your faith is genuine. In part, you can recognize a, a, an alive faith by what does it do and how does it operate. You know, as an example, right, if uh, you're willing to jump out of the airplane with a a little parachute on. You must have some faith that that thing's going to work. I'm not sure I have enough faith on that. But, but, but you wouldn't jump out if you, if you didn't believe it was going to save you, right? Anyways. Uh, of course, we see this in other ways. Uh, again, Scripture interpreting Scripture. What was that passage we read today from Matthew? That Jesus said you could recognize false Christians by their bad or lacking fruit. It wasn't the fruit that made them bad. It was that they were bad. But you can recognize it in their food. And that's what we're talking about here. So I believe it's, it's very clear that God here is ultimately testing, not whether he would earn enough. What God was testing here of Abraham was the faith of Abraham. Faith that's shown by his work of obedience. His work of his willing to sacrifice Isaac shows where his faith was. And indeed, you don't have to take my word for it. Scripture interprets Scripture. We read this in Hebrews. Isn't that what we read in Hebrews today? Hebrews eleven seventeen does not say, by works, Abraham. It says, by faith, Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. It's not my interpretation. It's right there in the Bible. Hebrews tells us this is ultimately a test of his faith. And look at how Hebrews helps us to connect the dots. Hebrews says that Abraham considered that God was able even to raise up Isaac from the dead. And figuratively, he did receive him back from the dead. You see, this is what's ultimately being tested by Abraham here. God had told Abraham, through Isaac, your seed will be named. Through Isaac, the promises I've given you will come to pass. All this was writing on Isaac, so to speak. Then God tells him, sacrifice him. Hebrews tells us Abraham put two and two together. I guess God's going to raise him from the dead. How else is this going to happen? God told me 
Isaac seed, but Isaac doesn't have children yet. So, so if I'm going to sacrifice Isaac today, I guess God is going to raise him from the dead. Hebrews says this is Abraham's thinking. Isn't that what we see in Genesis here? Look at verse 5. Abraham tells his servants in verse 5, he and Isaac would go to worship and then come back. Understand the grammar here is very clear in the Hebrew. Abraham says, we, Isaac and I, we will go worship, we will come again. It's clear in the Hebrew. And the we is that still Abraham and Isaac. You could accuse him of lying, but I'm not going to accuse him of lying. I'm going to accuse him of faith. Because Hebrews accuses him of faith. Surely there's some sense of that faith there, even how he answers his son. Dad, where's the offering? God will provide it. You could accuse him of lying to Isaac, but it's hard to make that accusation when guess what? God does provide it. Everything Abraham said is what actually happens. Faith shows here that it was correct. Abraham's faith was tested and passed the test. Well, that leads us into our second point to consider this idea that the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. Uh, that's probably a good if you needed like some scripture to put on a mantle or over a doorway or in a, in a empty wall in your house. The Lord will provide. That could be as good as any of the solos, maybe, what we talk about on Reformation Day, right? The Lord will provide. And it's the theme here. Again, I believe Abraham foretold this in some sense back in, in, in verse 7. I mean, he did, literally, foretell in verse 7. Uh, and God then provides a ram. Out of nowhere, seemingly, this ram is, is suddenly seen. And it becomes a sacrifice in place of Isaac, a substitutionary sacrifice. And that results in Abraham memorializing the place he calls it, the Lord will provide, or if you like some, some possibly badly pronounced Hebrew, uh, Jehovah Jireh. You've heard that before, Jehovah Jireh. Uh, this second point, again, emphasizes grace. Grace. If we thought today's passage emphasized Abraham's works. I think you missed the point of the passage. Again, that's as we're thinking Reformation topics today, what James has to say, you might mistakenly think that this is a passage that highlights the works of Abraham. This is a passage that highlights the works of God. The Lord will provide. That's the whole thesis that comes out of all of this. This passage emphasizes God's works. Don't miss God's gracious provision for his people. God provides a sacrifice in place of Isaac. So Abraham and his seed would receive God's promised blessings. And so with that understanding, let's, let's appreciate that Abraham's faithful obedience does become a picture we can use typologically of God's God the Father's abounding love for us. Again, I said everything I said about Abraham's faith here. But let's not miss that God does provide a picture for us of how Abraham's 
willingness to sacrifice Isaac becomes a picture, a greater picture that's fulfilled in God the Father and his abounding love for us. Three times in our passage, it's emphasized that Isaac is the only son. Every time we hear that, we're supposed to commendably recognize how Abraham did not withhold even his one and only son in obedience to God. But I tell you, in light now, particularly of the New Testament, in light of, say, a verse like John 3.16 or a number of other ones, I can tell you, how do you read this chapter today and every time you hear it say that he was willing to sacrifice his one and only son, you realize he didn't. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Romans 8 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? For our passage to repeatedly point out Abraham was willing to give up his only son only reminds us he didn't have to because God would Jesus. We hear the Lord provided here. We might be tempted again just to think of that silly ram. The Lord provided the ultimate. Jesus. Jesus is a substitute for Isaac. Jesus is a substitute for each one of you. All who are in Christ Jesus, the Lord will provide. So we can actually then think of Isaac's role here, uh, really as well as, as serving as a type of Christ. Jesus, of course, willingly went to the cross to die in our place. It's really interesting. You, you don't see Isaac here fighting back. We don't know how old Isaac is here. He's old enough to carry the wood. So he had to be at least Will's age. You know, strong. <laughs> I don't know how old, but but. He's, only called, he's young enough to call a boy in verse 5, but old enough to ask important questions like, where's the sacrifice, Dad? He's willingly goes with his father to, 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 to his potential sacrifice. Jesus, of course, had to carry his own cross. Isaac has to carry his wood for his own fire. Jesus, of course, remained under the power of death until the third day. So, too, is essentially the case for Isaac's three-day journey to Moriah. Indeed, Jesus would even be sacrificed on the same mount that Isaac is here offered. Isn't that awesome to think about? That's the place continue to be the Lord will provide. But, of course, there's a big difference between the two, between Isaac and Jesus. Isaac, excuse me, Jesus actually died. That's what makes... Isaac only a type of the Christ to come. Jesus was the ultimate one to come. And of course, Jesus didn't remain dead, but rose on the third day. So Isaac here makes us look ahead to how God himself would continue to fulfill that name of Lord of the Lord. And of course, that name how it names the place, when Abraham named the place the Lord will provide. Um, Abraham then 
uh, not only emphasize how the Lord's the one to provide for the sacrifice, but he does make a connection with the place. I think that's also helpful for us to, to think about that this is this future uh, location and not only Jerusalem, but Calvary. Abraham's emphasis here on the naming of the place, the mount of the Lord, where the Lord will provide. Again, it looks not only backward, but it looks forward to Calvary. I guess that's the point I want to make sure we, we didn't miss. There's, there's sort of prophecy here, whether Abraham realized it fully or not, there's prophecy here that the Lord will provide at Calvary. Now, I've been talking here in the second point about, about all the cool things that God does in terms of the Lord providing, but let's not miss a rather mundane detail, because we talk about the Lord providing, and we think of big picture things like Jesus, but the Lord also provides in the little details of our life. And, and look at the little details of verses 20 to 24. Verses 20 to 24. It gives us a little extended family tree about Abraham, not even Abraham, but about Abraham's brother, his uh, children of his brother. Why is that even told to us here? <coughs> if Isaac is going to be the seed, if Isaac is going to be the promised seed from which Jesus comes, he's going to need a wife. Right? The Lord will provide even for him, for a wife. Verse 23, you see his future wife is named there, Rebecca. We'll learn more about how he gets to meet Rebecca shortly in Genesis. By the way, that contrasts with the last chapter where it ended with Ishmael getting an Egyptian wife. Uh, here, Isaac gets a different sort of wife. Well, okay. Let's turn now to our third point uh, to briefly consider this oath that God takes here, starting in verse 15. And we see what God does here is he confirms his promises to Abraham, even as Abraham's faith was confirmed. God does this via swearing an oath. And of course, oaths, according to the Bible, are to be taken in the name of God. The Old Testament emphasizes this. Jesus, remember, corrected how the people were taking oaths and other things, not by the name of God, and trying to do that to sort of make an oath and get out of their oath in a sense. But no, oaths are supposed to be done in the name of God. God here takes an oath in his own name. The idea of taking an oath in, in the name of God is you are appealing to God as the ultimate power to hold you accountable if you break the oath. Because there's no one greater than God. And God, of course, sees all things and knows all things and is all-powerful. So God is able to hold you accountable even when man's ability to hold you accountable can't. I mean, think about that, right? You go under court trial and you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, uh, you know, uh, so help me God, right? You might lie and, and, and convince everyone of something false. And we may not know, but God knows. We will not hold him guiltless. Who taketh the Lord's name in vain? God here strengthens his previous promises with an oath. Now, when we look at the details here of what God swears to perform, uh, you can see, on the one hand, him reiterating the promises he already gave. On the other hand, you can also see some wonderful little nuances of additional little details that he, he puts in here. Uh, so some of the 
things that he reiterates. He again speaks about blessing Abraham. He again speaks of how great, how big the offspring will be uh, through Isaac. Uh, he again uses that analogy he gave before about the about the stars in the sky. You know, if you could count the stars, and you could count how big Abraham's offspring would be. But notice he does give a little bit of additional detail here. For example, he gives another analogy, one we haven't heard before. This one, it's about the sand of the seashore. I go to a sand, and I would go to the beach. I have to go to Southern California for that. But mm-hmm. Go to the beach, and you'll see just sand upon sand, right? That's another analogy of how great Abraham's offspring is going to be. He also gives a little bit of new information here about the other nations. Verse 17, he says how Abraham will possess the gates of his enemies. He'll possess the gates of his enemies. He did not talk, God has not talked in those terms up to this point with Abraham. But what, what that's getting at is, is there are going to be nations that oppose Abraham. is going to give Abraham and his seed a sure victory over those nations. Now he also mentions here in verse 18 that all the nations of the earth shall be blessed through Abraham's seed, which is very similar to what we saw in Genesis 12, it said all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And I also said those who bless you will be blessed, and those who curse you will be cursed. Connect the dots here. What's God saying about the nations? The picture that's given here is you have Abraham in contrast to two different kinds of nations. There will be some nations that persecute Abraham and his seed. And they will be under God's terrible wrath and judgment. And they will be destroyed in their opposition to Abraham. Not because of Abraham, but because of Abraham is, is God's people. On the other hand, you have some nations that are going to kiss the sun. They're going to, they're going to bless Abraham and look to be in, in peace with Abraham. I, I use the kiss of sun reference. That's Psalm 2 I'm talking about. Psalm 2 point, paints this same picture. It says that there's going to be some nations that oppose Christ. And there are some nations that are going to look to be in allegiance with Christ. And if you are in allegiance with Christ, you will know blessing. And if you're not, you will know judgment and curse. And so we have a picture of that all right here. Well, as we consider this idea of God swearing these promises by himself, by his own name, I want to give you some inspired application of this. Again, Hebrews has blessed us with some great commentary of this section of Scripture. I'm now, I have in mind Hebrews 6. We didn't read it, but maybe that's some Sunday afternoon reading for you. Go read Hebrews 6. But it comments on this idea of God swearing by himself. And Hebrews 6 makes an application. The Bible believes an application. Hebrews 6 gives an application. It says it applies to us in terms of our assurance. God's promises here, when he confirms them by an oath, we have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. In other words, we can trust God. Of course, that's always the case. But the Bible is saying you can trust him before. You can all the more trust him once he's sworn it by an oath. That means he wants you to have that kind of assurance. He doesn't want us wondering, I hope I'll be saved. He wants us to have a strong assurance. 
Trinity Presbyterian Church, today we've seen two things confirmed. We've seen Abraham's faith confirmed via a test. We've seen God's promises confirmed via an oath. And we've seen God's promises confirmed via an oath as it relates to the providing of the sacrifice. Of course, we're thinking ahead to Jesus. But as we kind of wrap this all up and, and, and do some application, I want us to think in terms of, of assurance just a little bit further in terms of our application of these ideas. Abraham's faith being confirmed and God's promises being confirmed. Think about all this in terms of assurance. How can we be assured that we are saved? Well, we've talked, theologians have talked about two aspects of assurance. You can think of objective assurance and subjective assurance. And both have a place in the life of a Christian. Our objective assurance is, is, is basically rooted in the sworn, gracious promises of God who does not lie. Right? Objectively means we're looking outside of ourselves to what God has said, what God has done. So our objective assurance, looking out of ourselves to the object, to God, and his oath, that is the ultimate reason for our assurance. Look into the grace of God. He sworn to us. So we see our objective assurance here. And then the subjective assurance. Also an important part of our thinking of assurance. Subjective assurance, think of subject in the sentence, looking at yourself. Okay? We look to our heart. We try to see that we have a lively faith, a true faith, a genuine faith. Here we see Abraham, his faith is tested and confirmed. We want to look as well at our own heart and life. Do we see a lively, genuine faith? That's what we call subjective assurance. Now, I want us to make sure we understand if you put one versus the other, the objective assurance is the most important, right? We struggle in our own subjective ways at times. And whenever we struggle in our own subjective ways at times, the solution is to keep all the more turning our focus onto the objective. But there are always both of these things that we want to bring into our, our Christian life. Because Scripture brings both for us to consider. For example, Scripture calls us to make our calling and election sure. Scripture calls us to examine, to see that we're in the faith. And yes, we're called to look to see if there's truth coming from our faith. Because yes, faith without works is dead. We want to have a lively faith, a genuine faith that looks to follow God. I'm going to think about categories of both objective and subjective assurance. Now, in our Christian faith, I think we should recognize we have some practices that the church does that helps us see this importance of a confirmed faith, of a confirmed faith. For example, think of our covenant children. Right? What do we have them do as they, they're born into the church? They get baptized from the very beginning. They grew up in the faith. They're learning to live out that faith and know what it means. But at some point, they're old enough to make that official public profession of faith. They're interviewed by the elders and ultimately admitted 
to make that profession. And that's actually sometimes even called confirmation. Talking about confirmation of their faith. It's a process that looks to give confirmation to their faith. Now, something similar happens whenever we receive new members from outside the church. We bring them into the church. Again, the session will know if we'll interview them, and if they believe they have a credible profession, we'll invite them to make a similar profession. And that is meant to be a sort of outward confirmation of their faith. And think about it this way. We'll get a chance to do this next week. Every time we come to the Lord's Supper, you're being called to examine that you're in the faith. Every time we have the Lord's Supper, it's another instrument God has given the church to be doing what we're talking about here in terms of examining our faith, examining our hearts to see that we're in the faith. It's an opportunity again to be reconfirmed in your faith. And each of these different examples I gave have both elements of both objective and subjective assurance at work. So we can be encouraged and we can be assured that we have come to know and receive that sure salvation God has sworn to us by Jesus Christ. Well, in God's providence, today's message comes on the calendar on the day of Reformation Sunday. I didn't pick this. It just happened, right? We're just working through Genesis. And here, this, this is a passage that the Reformers contended over with the, 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 the Catholics. But today's passage gives us the biblical balance of faith and works that the Reformers, the Protestants, uh, teach. They taught it then, they still teach it now. We can rightly affirm the solas that we're justified by grace through faith alone, even while we acknowledge that, that a true faith does express itself in godly works. But that nuance is so important. We are never justified by works. That nuance is what the Reformation was about. It's so important to get that nuance right because it drives us back to the same conclusion that Abraham came to today. When it comes to our salvation, we need to see the Lord will provide. Indeed, he has in Christ alone. What a Reformation Day passage. Soli Deo Gloria. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the doctrines of grace that were preserved through the centuries. Even when at times the clear light of the gospel had become so dimly preached, even in your church. And yet we rejoice again today in the gospel of grace. We give you thanks for a passage like today to remind us of that glorious doctrine of justification by faith alone. And to remember that that doctrine is no enemy of good works. But all the more encourages us to strive for godliness and holiness, knowing by what great price we were purchased. And so we pray, Lord, for your continued work of your spirit in our lives, that we would be bearing all the more the fruit of righteousness. And so we pray together in the name of the Lord Jesus, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen.